Please sit comfortably. It's always pleasant to listen to all of the random natural sounds that come and go as just before we do a Dharma talk. As I've mentioned before, the Dharma talk, before the Dharma talk. All that randomness. The buzzing of the fly and the sound of the birds and the breeze. Um, this is the last talk of this session. And the last talk, I often try to uh, focus on what it is that we can take out of this session and every, into everyday life and a practice in everyday life that keeps this um, practice alive. But the title of, um, of this talk is something that someone said to me um, during Daisan, and that is, Zen hasn't improved my bowling. <laughs> Phil told me this and I got Phil's permission to to use this, but it's not about Phil, it's about all of us. Zen hasn't improved my flute playing either. Mm-hmm. But when I heard this, and the manner in which Phil said it to me, and he said it with um, lots of equanimity and wry humour, and it was the funniest thing I'd heard all week. <laughs> Zen hasn't improved my bowling. Mm-hmm. Um, after all the, the many books that have been written on Zen, and Zen and the art of this, and Zen and the art of this, and how Zen's going to improve this, or mindfulness is going to improve that, and Zen hasn't improved my bowling. Uh Let's look at the um, various statements I've put down here. I'm going to practice loving kindness in order to be a nicer person to other people. I'm going to practice mindfulness so that I can become calmer. I'm going to think positive thoughts in order to be happier. I'm going to practice brain exercises so my brain will become like Buddha's brain. I'm going to be a good person in order to go to heaven. And I'm going to practice sasin in order to become enlightened. Doesn't this sound like there's something a bit weird about those statements? Hmm? It presupposes that there's some I and there's some eye that has a deficit in something and it's going to put intentional effort into a certain activity and it's hopefully going to get an outcome which will be better. Mm -hmm. And within those words is the whole delusion around practice. Mm -hmm. If we approach Zen training and we approach a session or a lifetime of Zen training is like getting an academic degree from a university. That um, this is this is what I've enrolled in and and I put all the effort in and I'll get a degree at the end of it. It's just not like that. It's not like anything else that you you do. People can project secular kind of views or very worldly approaches to to religion or Zen training, but it's kind of as a, I know it's a, an old-fashioned word, which is kind of hippie-sounding, but, but Zen practice is counterculture. Christianity is too, actually, when you really look at it. Or Judaism, you know, they're all counterculture in that they're, they're not about <coughs> striving 
to inflate the self in some way or to, to gain some kind of social status. It's not about that at all. And so we really look at, need to look at um, how we practice. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, we tend to think that something is only worthwhile because we get some kind of result out of it, you know, or, or a good result out of it. And many people, when talking about um, <clears throat> awakening or so-called opening experiences that occur along the way in doing Dharma practice, is, is that it, the only thing that happens is that there's a kind of a sense of release um, because we've been holding on so tightly before and so tight, you know, grasping around this little sense of self that needs to get somewhere, that, that all that really happens when people have an opening experience is that stopped happening. Mm-hmm. And because it's a sense of release, people can jump up and down and be happy, you know, and think that something, you know, wonderful has happened. But all it is is a sense of release from that sort of... Um, that that sense of ego, which is simply just a, um, a, a, a psychophysical tension. Mm-hmm. And, and the psychophysical tension just keeps the whole machine going, mm-hmm. trying to find some relief, but it never examines what it's doing. Mm-hmm. So practice which is, you know, result-driven um, is not going to get us anywhere. And that is why, um, in the wise words of someone like Dogen, in, in practicing Zazen, he says that Zazen is awakening, Zazen is enlightenment. There's actually no separation between the two. And in Haku and Senji's Song of Zazen, there's those words near the end that affect and cause are the same, along the words that they're the there's no difference between effect and cause. The way is neither two nor three. Uh, there is a way of looking at the world where we're not imposing human values or human projections onto what actually occurs, what occurs in nature. Mm-hmm. I think we're doing something in order to get a result. And like I said, what's embedded in that is that there's some sense of of deficit, you know, there's something missing. And if we do the practice, what is missing will get filled in, the whole will get filled up. It'd be better to look into the emptiness of the whole than look at a way of filling it up. <laughs> this has real practical implications in the way that we actually practice, because instead of um, practicing loving kindness and, you know, to become a nicer person or practicing mindfulness in order to be calmer. Rather, it's best just to, just to be present with what comes up. And often in session in particular, um, a lot of very powerful emotions can start to go through us and pass and then come up again. And whether they're very intense feelings of anger and rage or intense feelings of sorrow and longing, best to bring attention to those experiences rather than try to bypass them into something better, you know, or be result driven. Because if we look into rage, we just sort of present with it, 
then we can, we can eventually see into what you might call its emptiness or its insubstantiality. Something, because within rage there is, there is an aversion towards something or a grasping after something. So we just notice the, what that's about, the grasping and the aversion that's there in the rage, the whole tightness in the ball of it. And if, and if we do it long enough, so it, it, something needs to shift, something will shift. But if the intention is always to either intellectually understand it or psychologically understand it or get past it, um, it, will, it will keep coming up until we really focus on it. Same with, with sorrow, you know, and, and longing and sadness. Um, there's a kind of a, a, a grasping in that as well. Mm-hmm. And if we look into that, we'll see into what its true nature is. Who is being sorrowful? Who is grasping? Who is rageful? Mm-hmm. The writer, the Zen writer Alan Watts, said something along the lines that, that life is just one dissolving moment after another, one dissolving moment after another, and there's nothing to grasp and there's no one to do the grasping. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the essential thing we, we need to see in our practice. So if rage arises, that's okay. Rage is there, sorrow is there, sorrow is there. Neither of those are there, that's fine. We just work with whatever comes up. But Zen practice also gives you the resources to deal with that because the resources it gives us, you know, um, that people often don't have, is that we develop the resource of mindfulness, that ability to just simply objectively step back and, and witness and hold what is there without judgment. That makes it easier to be with the rage or the sorrow, whatever it might be. And when we have a, um, <clears throat> a sense of self-compassion towards the suffering that comes with that, that also helps us just to stay with the experience rather than try and get rid of it, intellectualise it, whatever we might want to do. So Zazen and, and the holding, whole holding pattern of session gives us a great container, um, very strong container in which we can be with those experiences. You can experience either session or even one period of Zazen in everyday life as either a prison to escape from or a container, and that container allows you to deepen your intimacy with what is. That's, that's the choice each time, and I'm sure all of us have experienced both. We've experienced session or sitting as, as a prison we want to get away from to do something more interesting, whatever that might be. But we also have all experienced it as a container so that we don't escape from what is and by not escaping we become intimate with what is and, and that's where we're really cooking in, in practice so the act of sarsin where the act of sarsin um, to follow again Dogen's teachings I'm paraphrasing it, but he said delusion is the self going out there looking for confirmation. And what realisation is, is the 10,000 things of life 
affirming the self. So again, the process of, 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 uh, of meditation, Zazen, instead of grasping for a result, it's simply going into that place of calm receptivity as to what is. It's all about receptivity. And when you really understand that practice is about receptivity rather than trying to get a result, that's where the whole thing starts to turn around. And that's where the whole body relaxes and it becomes, I wouldn't say effortless, but it becomes an effortless effort. So it's kind of like all you've got to do is, is turn up and be present to what you're experiencing. That's all. You don't have to do anything more than that. Just turn up and be present to what you're experiencing. You got to, haven't got to do elaborate exercises that manip- manipulate your consciousness into this or that. That's in game. But to simply turn up, be awake to, just simply be present to receive whatever the moment brings to you. It's simple. And yet it's so hard to do because we complicate it. But it really is so simple to do. And if through practice, and, and everyone will get to that point sooner or later, uh, after realising that the, all, the, all the other um, attempts really don't get anywhere, right? like, like practice is trial and error. It's like you do something and you go, oh, that's not, that doesn't actually work. No, do that. No, that doesn't work. And we just simply return to simplicity and open awareness we're just willing to receive. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way it is. So, post-session, um, what I'm suggesting, um, apart from continuing our, our meditation and the precepts and so on in everyday life, what I'm recommending that everyone really makes the time to do post-session and, and include it in your life as much as possible is a very simple thing and a very enjoyable thing. And that is simply to spend more time in nature. Mm -hmm. So whether it's walking through a forest or a field or sailing a boat on the ocean or whatever it might be, is actually to spend more time in nature because it's a great teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting spending more time in nature to see how quickly you can get from A to B, you know, how fast you can do it, or just doing it as exercise, as aerobic exercise. I'm suggesting you do it in the sense of just purposelessness and wandering. And just like we walk outside, just, just walking anywhere, stopping, looking at the view, walking, without trying to get anywhere and if we immerse ourselves in nature and observe nature the more we do it like Zazen the more the more we're steeped in it the more we'll be stained by nature I mean that in the positive sense of the world we'll be steeped in it it's like when you you dip a cloth in red dye it becomes more red the more we just immerse ourselves in nature without trying to get something from it, but just to be it, the more that we'll be stained by, I'm going to use a fancy word now, but not a poetic word, the more we'll be stained by interbeing. 
because that, that is what nature is, is showing us every moment. The interbeing, the interconnectedness, the interwovenness of everything. And it has no purpose, it has no sense of meaning or purpose. It's just doing what it's doing. However, people, particularly educated people, um, project certain things into nature. And, and we project certain things like, well, flowers are colourful and they give off a scent in order to attract bees and attracts the bees in order for the bees to get honey to give to the queen bee. And I'm sure bees are not thinking anything like that. They're just collecting honey. And the flowers are just giving off a scent. They, they don't do it with any, any idea in mind, we'll do this in order to, for that to happen. Right? But that's what human beings project onto nature. And the Dharma way of looking at nature, it's not, it's not, what, it's not projecting a a philosophical or scientific view onto it that like a, a string of billiard balls where one hits the other in a sequence, you know, and, and a certain effect of course, that's very limited. But if we see if we see nature through non conceptual eyes, we see as as Huckelman says, as cause and effect that are the same. Like everything if everything inter is or is, is in interbeing Everything's a cause and effect at the same time. Um, it's all, it's not linear. It's not in one direction. It's just all happening at once, all over the place. It's multifaceted, do you know, beyond our comprehension. Just reflect on it, like in this room with all the trees and the birds around us and the sky and the stars. It's just beyond our comprehension. And it's just all interweaving. If we immerse ourselves in that, we, we immerse ourselves in, in not only the way things are organised, like nature is not actually chaotic. You know, magpies don't turn into rosellas. You know, gum trees don't turn into other trees. They're, everything has got its organisation, its own, own organic organisation. And at the same time, there's so much randomness in nature. Just sitting here, we experience that all the time. That's one of the wonderful things um, about coming to a place like this to sit. It's just the random sound of the birds as they come and go, the random sound of a, a branch falling on the roof, mm -hmm. the randomness of the, the breeze coming and going. Um, when we immerse in ourselves in nature, we, we, we immerse ourselves in that meaningless, in the intellectual sense of the word, meaningless, purposeless place of experience. Mm -hmm. And most of us have lost touch with it, that's why we, we do a practice like this. And I'm suggesting we do it because it's just plain enjoyable to do. Mm -hmm. It's just plain enjoyable to do. Um, in Japanese culture, I came across a word which is um, fura, fura. And what fura, fura um, points towards in nature is kind of like random experiences. It's, that word refers to like the flapping of a cloth in the breeze. Mm -hmm. Or um, 
a ball just randomly floating down rapids in a stream. Mm -hmm. And one of the wonderful things about Japanese culture um, and which has been influenced so much by, by Taoism and by Zen is that they, they have words like this that, that point towards a way of relating to life that we often don't have in our own culture. So in our culture, the flapping of a, a cloth in the breeze would be seen just a pointless kind of experience. Why do you want to look at that for? Or, 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 or be wondered, have a sense of wonder about it. One of wonderful things about Zen and about Japanese culture, it points to these ordinary, everyday experiences and there's words to describe it so we can communicate it to others of just the wonderful ran randomness of being. Mm -hmm. No purpose at all in a cloth flapping in the breeze. Mm -hmm. Or the um, random sounds of a wind chime for example, too, is like that as well. How wonderful. And when you look at the, um, the names um, that uh, great Zen teachers have had, you know, which gives you a flavour of what Zen, if we want to call it a religion, maybe, um, but it's a religion that doesn't take itself too seriously. And it takes its, its names um, that are given to, um, to uh, people who have been awake, which are names that come from nature often. Uh, and Yamada Roshi, for example, who was Robert Aitken's um, teacher, um, very um, uh, wonderful Japanese <coughs> teacher, his name was Wandering Cloud. Mm -hmm. Wandering crowd. What a what a wonderful name to give um, someone like that, it, that that expresses just the randomness of life. DT Suzuki's Dharma name to translate it was Great Donkey. Uh -huh. Knows nothing. No thinking going on there. Really stupid, you know. The great stupid one. Uh -huh. Another Zen teacher's name was Stonehead. Well, nothing going on there either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you see, you see the the, the humour in this. You know, you see the humour in and the beauty in the names. They're, they're not they're not names that that um, that point towards um, status or superiority at all. They're not archbishops or whatever. They're just like flowers. They're just like cloth flapping in the breeze. That's what they've become. That's what their lives have become. To return full circle to um, Zen hasn't improved my bowling or my flute playing. Um, actually, it was the way in which, uh, like I said, it was the way in which um, Phil conveyed this to me with such a, a wry sense of humour and such equanimity. This watch was wonderful, and that is the fruit of Zen practice. Not some sense of perfection. But, paradoxically, if you do practice Zen, it will improve your bowl. And if you practice Zen, it will improve your flute playing. Because you will be less concerned about a self who's going to get it right. Mm -hmm. 
and then you can immerse yourself in just bowling the ball, you know, or just playing. And a lot of that result-driven kind of activity drops away. And then you can actually learn from your mistakes, right, because you're aware of them, you know, and then you can read the feedback and correct things. But whilst, so long as we're involved in, in getting ahead of ourselves to results, well, we will continue to suffer. Mm -hmm. The flowers are not looking for results. The bees are not looking for results. The birds are not looking for results. They're just doing what they're doing. Mm 